Well, it's good to see you here this morning, and if you are worshiping with us, uh, maybe for the first time today, my name is Jeff, and I am one of the pastors here, and again, we're honored that you are here and trust that the Lord will uh, really continue to minister His grace to your heart. This day, as Ryan prayed, we are continuing here in a series in the Gospel of Mark, so I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, The words will also be up on the screen behind me. The book of Mark, Mark chapter 4. And we will look just at that last section, starting at verse 35 and going through verse 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through verse 41. If you're able to, please stand as I read. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, give us grace now as we come to the reading and preaching of your word. I need you to speak only what is true and edifying. I need your help, your grace to do that. Lord, in my weakness, I feel that. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, you would cause good gospel growth in every heart here today and give to your people who are listening the ability not just to hear words or phrases or points or even verses, but in fact to hear the very voice of Jesus. That's what we need, Lord. We need to hear your voice. So grant us grace to do that, to listen well. Grant the gift of faith that your your seed, your word, would fall on good soil, that there would be soft soil in our hearts this day, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the end of Mark chapter 4 brings us to a story here that is probably familiar to many, if not even all of us here this morning, particularly if maybe you grew up going to Sunday school. This is one of the more popular snapshots of Jesus and his disciples, and for good reasons. Now, if you didn't maybe grow up going to Sunday school or going to church, I, I think you're in for a treat this morning, because this story has all the great elements of a great story. There's a life-threatening circumstance. There's heightened emotions. 
There are colorful, colorful characters with, with multiple layers. There's conflict. There's intrigue. There's some mystery. There's a hero. And it ends, as we kind of want all really great stories to end, it kind of ends on a cliffhanger. There's a lingering question that, that hangs in the balance. It's, it's the kind of question that would make for a really good first scene of season two if this were a Netflix series. But as familiar and popular as this story is here at the end of Mark chapter 4, this happens to be also one of the more misapplied stories about Jesus. Now, you may have even heard sermons in the past. Frankly, they may be better sermons than the one I'm about to preach. But you may have heard sermons in the past about how this text is, is really about Jesus, the divine storm chaser, how he just chases all the storms away in your life, or how Jesus, as he stilled the storms in nature, he can still the storms in your heart as well. Now, this is true, of course. There's a profound comfort for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He is our rock. He is our refuge. In times of trouble, he is near to us. Amen and amen and amen. But that's actually not the point of this text here. And this is where preachers like me can go sideways, actually, pretty fast. I did a Google search this last week on just sermon titles for this specific text. And obviously, you can't get the whole sermon in just a sermon title. But you can, a sermon title ought to give you at least some sense for where the sermon is going and what the main point is. One title struck me, Keep Calm and Carry On. And so if that, that's a far snappier title than the one I came up with. But if that's the point of this text, keep calm and carry on, let's just close in prayer. We'll see you next week, chapter 5. I don't have a whole lot to say. Another one that caught my attention. Make room in your boat for Jesus. Now that one actually struck me as just a little bit odd because as we're about to see here, the disciples are not sure that they want Jesus in the boat with them. For most of the story, they're not sure that Jesus is helping them at all, that there's any advantage to having Jesus in the boat with them on this day. So for most of the story, they, they don't really want to make room for him. So how do we make sure that, that we're getting it right? How do we make sure that we're really understanding here the point? What Mark is really wanting to communicate to us? Well, Mark actually gives us three clues. Technically, it's more like one clue repeated three times in our text, and I'd invite you to look with me, rub our noses here in God's word. This great story actually revolves around the word great. This is the Greek word megas or mega, from which, again, we get our word huge or ginormous or incredible, very, very great. So we might say, you know, Elon Musk is mega rich. Or, you know what I need today? A mega dose of patience or caffeine. Or she is mega popular at school. You add mega to something or to describe a person or some experience, and you're likely describing something that you're not going to forget at least not too soon. Mark tells us here a mega story. It's a great story that pivots around the three times that we see this word great here in this text. So verse 37, we find a great windstorm. It's a mega windstorm. Verse 39, 
there is great calm, mega calm. And in verse 40, this great story ends with great fear, mega fear. Great windstorm, great calm, great fear. So we want to look at each one of those components in our time together this morning. The setting for this great story is a great windstorm. Let me read again, starting at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the other boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, why do you not care that we are perishing? Now, this has been a very long, long day in the life of Jesus and in the teaching of Jesus. We would say this has been a mega long day. It actually began back in Mark chapter 3 with the blasphemous accusations. There, I said it. Accusations from the Pharisees that Jesus is the devil. That he's doing the work of the devil, that he is in fact the son of the devil. And you know what happened next? Jesus uh, his brothers and his mother, they try to seize him. They try to arrest him because they actually think he's out of his mind. He's gone crazy. And so Jesus escapes to the sea only to be followed by this large crowd, so large, in fact, that Jesus has to get in a boat and he just pushes off a little bit into the sea. And there we found the first parable that he taught us. This is Mark, the beginning of Mark chapter 4. Jesus taught two more parables. We looked at last week about growth. What does that look like in the kingdom of God? And now it's evening. And Jesus, in effect, says to his disciples, let's get in the boat and row, row, row across the water. As a, as a human being, as a man, I mean, Jesus is exhausted. He, he's weary, and rightly so. So a nice, gentle sunset cruise as the water is calm and the sun is setting, as you just have a chance to reflect on the day that it was, that, that's what we would all want in this situation, wouldn't we? We might even say, this is what I really need. Perhaps this, is, this would be a benefit for Jesus as well. But that's, that's not what happened, is it, on this night? Jesus and his disciples, they actually get in that boat and they begin to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long. It's about eight miles wide, and at its deepest point, it's about 140 feet deep. But because it sits at about 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by mountains with deep ravines, sea squalls are common. They're still common today, just as they were back then. And so when the wind picks up, the mountains really form this gigantic funnel, a mega funnel, that pushed the winds onto the sea and a storm would erupt, oftentimes without warning. It would happen almost instantaneously. The point is, if you got caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, you were in deep trouble. Mega trouble. And if you were thinking, you know, we got a boat, we're in a boat, maybe the boat will protect us and keep us floating, well, you're not going to get much help from the boat. These are not ocean liners that Jesus and his disciples are on. There's nothing fancy about this kind of boat. They're very modest, in fact. 
Back in 1986, this is, I find this stuff super fascinating. It's like God knows what he's doing, and he does. But way back in 1986, and you can Google this this afternoon. Uh, you can Google a lot of things, which is not an endorsement to do that. It's a warning. But the, the Sea of Galilee, 1986, was at an historically low point. There was a drought, and archaeologists discovered at the bottom on the western shore a fishing boat. And, and it was well-preserved, and they actually were able to date it between... Uh, 100 B.C. and 50 A.D. In other words, that's the kind of fishing boat that we're talking about here. It fits the time period. And they discovered that that fishing boat was about 26 feet long, 7 feet wide, and about 4 feet high on the sides. It had a couple spots for oars. Uh, it had a sail. Basically, it was a very large canoe, a mega canoe. And you could probably fit about 12 guys, maybe 15, if you just crammed them in there. That's the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples are on. And this is no pleasure cruise, as we're about to find out. Verse 37, here comes the great windstorm. Now, Matthew in his account actually uses the word seismos, as in seismic, meaning it was like an earthquake to describe this storm. It was as if... The sea was being uh, shaken. And Mark, again, is, as I think we're, we're enjoying, Mark, short on details, but he's pretty descriptive. He just says, look, the waves are crashing into the boat, and it's filling up, and it's beginning to sink. That paints us the picture, doesn't it? Now, if you're in a life-threatening situation like this, I think it's, it's kind of our common idea that it'd be sure helpful if we could find somebody who knows what they're doing. If we could find someone who maybe has some experience in these kinds of situations, maybe somebody who has experience in a crisis situation on a sea, well, that would be helpful. You wouldn't want me in that boat because I would have thrown up eight times by now, maybe nine. But of the disciples, there are some guys they're experienced fishermen. They're lifelong, rugged fishermen. Those are the kinds of guys I think we would want to point to. That we'd want to say, hey, you can probably help. This isn't your first storm. Uh, what do you think we should do? You'll be very helpful. It'd kind of be like if you're, if you're on an airplane and you're flying through a, a thunderstorm, mega turbulence. And so you look to the person sitting next to you and you notice that, well, they're, they're starting to hyperventilate. And so you're concerned, but... But maybe they just have a fear of flying. This is kind of just what happens. But, but then if you're flying through a storm and you look to a person sitting next to you and that person is wearing a Delta Airlines captain uniform and that guy is hyperventilating, you, you think, I think it's time for me to hyperventilate too. And so you're pushing that panic button. If a captain of an airplane is starting to, to freak out and lose it, well, that's not a good thing. And here we have this great windstorm that is threatening the lives of all the disciples. The fishermen who, who I think are supposed to know, they have experience, they're not any help at this point. And the one person who can do something, the captain, if you will, well, he's asleep. He's in the back of the boat. And I love how Mark describes it. Verse 38, Jesus is in the stern for the non-nautical people here, that's the back of the boat. He's sleeping on a cushion. Now, that cushion was probably more like a sandbag that Jesus is laying his head on. 
And his disciples, I happen to think this was Peter, Peter wakes him up and he says, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Again, Matthew in his gospel simply records it as, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Luke says, Master, Master, we are perishing. The common thread in all of the gospel accounts is, Lord, we're dying here and you're asleep. We're, we're, we're perishing here, Lord, and you don't seem to care at all. Now, I'm not sure at this point in the story what is most remarkable. Is it the, the sea-quaking, terrifying storm that is threatening the lives of everybody on this little boat, or is it the fact that Jesus is crammed into this tiny boat with 15 other guys, they're all yelling and screaming for their lives, and he's in the back of the boat asleep on a sandbag? I mean, that is remarkable, isn't it? And some of you moms are saying, man, my husband can do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, he, well, I didn't realize how like Jesus he is. <laughs> Which is not the point of the story. That is not where we're going here. But that is remarkable. How could he possibly be asleep through, through this kind of great mega storm? And that's the essence of the disciples' question. It's actually, it's actually more of a rebuke than a question. It's, it's an accusation. The disciples, fearing for their lives, they actually rebuke Jesus. Lord, don't you care? We're going to die, and you're doing nothing to help us. Aren't you going to do something, anything? Do you even care about us at all? Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, at some point, you know that because you've maybe said similar words, maybe not audible, maybe in prayer, maybe in your own heart. Lord, don't you see the situation in my life? Don't you see the trouble I'm in? It doesn't appear that you're doing anything. Do you even care? Are you concerned at all, Lord, about me and my family? It seems at this point, brothers and sisters, that, that both Jesus... And the disciples are exactly where they need to be. They're in the exact right place. At this point in this great story, the disciples are in the front of the boat, but nearing the end of themselves. They know they're going to die, apart from divine rescue, apart from Jesus intervening. And it is so often the case for us that the trials and the difficulties and the moments of great need and the, the desperate times in our lives are, in fact, the very times that God uses to bring us to the end of ourselves. And when we then are at the end of ourselves or nearing the end of ourselves, that is to say the, the end of our abilities, the end of our capabilities, our resources, our gifts, when we're flat out exhausted, when we are out of moves, we have no other card to lay on the table then God actually begins to do some of his greatest work in our lives and in our hearts. But the problem for us is most of us here are 
so painfully slow to actually come to that point. To come to the point where, where we don't have any other move to make. Where we have to throw ourselves at the mercy of Christ and ask him for help. And it is so often the case that God actually has to carry us to that point. But we have to come to the end of ourselves. In fact, nobody turns to Christ in faith without doing that, without coming to the end of themselves. Lord, I think I'm good enough. I'm not perfect, but I've got enough talent here. I'm going to make it on my own. Lord, surely the, the good deeds that I'm doing, that's enough for you, right? No, that's not the gospel. The gospel's not do the best you can, work hard, and God's pleased by that. We have to come to the end of ourselves. The gospel is such good news for people like us. Maybe we're not quite at the end of ourselves. But the gospel reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the reason so often that there are trials and difficulties and moments of great need in our life is not because Jesus doesn't care about us. He absolutely does care. But he's bringing us to the end of ourselves, where then we can turn to him in repentance, in faith, and we can trust him for grace that we need in that very moment. The gospel reminds us that God, in fact, sent Jesus from heaven to earth. That is an, that is an infinite distance to, to walk with us as one of us, to live the life that we could not live because of our sins, and ultimately to die on a cross for us. So the disciples are, are actually at a really good point. They're just about at the end of themselves. That's a good spot to be because you open yourself up to receive from the Lord. How about Jesus? Well, he's been asleep. He's not worried. He's not stressed. He is, yes, humanly exhausted. But, but there's more to it than that. Jesus is sleeping soundly. Why? Because he's trusting in his heavenly Father. He's trusting in his providential care. He's confident that he's confident in the Father's promise that he will be faithful to him and to complete the mission. His mission on this earth. Isn't that interesting? When the world around him is in full panic mode, Jesus is sleeping. Not because he's callous to the needs of others, not because he's unaffected by what's going on, not because he's uncaring. Remember, the very reason that he's in the boat, the reason that he came to this world, and ultimately the reason that he would one day go to the cross was precisely because of that. Because of his great care, his steadfast love for people like us who, who are sinners, who are sufferers, who, who live with all kinds of fears and needs. The mission of Jesus here, church, was, was not to quiet the storms on the Sea of Galilee. His mission was far greater, far deeper, far more eternal. The mission of Jesus was to, act, to absorb the wrath of a holy God that we deserve on the cross to set us free, to give us life, to rescue us. Many of you are familiar with John Newton, I've said this before. In fact, I asked Becky this morning, did I just say this last week or two weeks ago? And if I did, just go with me. John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, I don't know uh, for a fact that he, he, 
he said this while he was on one of those slave ships, but perhaps he did. He said, I know two things in life. I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great savior. I am a mega sinner. Jesus is a mega savior. We have mega sins. He has mega grace and mega mercy and mega compassion and mega love for you, for, for people like us. There's a great windstorm. That's the first great. Here's the second one. That great windstorm was followed by great calm. Verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. So the disciples rebuked Jesus. Jesus now turns around and rebukes the storm and the wind. And incidentally, that same word rebuke is, is the same thing, same word that Jesus used back in Mark chapter 1, verse 25, when, when he rebukes the man with the unclean spirit. So literally, he says, see, be muzzled. Stop. Be still. And again, all three gospel accounts share this. What is fascinating, interesting, is that all three of them record that the wind stopped immediately, instantaneously. So it's not like there was a gradual process and the disciples are hanging on the boat and they're looking, the waves are crashing in, they're fearing for their lives. Jesus speaks and then they kind of say, well, nothing's happened. You guys see anything? So we're taking on water. Keep the bailing buckets. Keep going. Jesus spoke. Calm. Be still and remain still. That's, that's what's going on here. And that, friends, that, that would be the definition of an eerie silence, wouldn't it? I mean, who does that kind of thing? Who says to the storm and speaks to a storm and says, be calm, and it is? Just think about that for a moment. Let's say on a nice Spokane summer evening, you take your kids to a Spokane Indians game. You settle in, you got a hot dog in one hand, you got your ball glove in the other. It doesn't get more American than that, I know. It's a beautiful evening, and then the third inning, the clouds kind of roll in. The fourth inning, it begins to rain. The fifth inning, there's some thunder and lightning in a distance. The sixth inning, here it comes, there's a thunderstorm, and you begin to hear the crowd around you. They're starting to murmur, they're starting to wonder, do we take cover? Is the game going to be delayed? Is this a rain delay? Everybody's scurrying for their, for their cars. And you stand up and say, no, no, you don't have to do that. I got this. And so you run down and then you hop on top of the dugout and you throw your hands up in there and you say to the storm, stop, be still. And it does. That, that would be mega weird. And just that would be eerie, wouldn't it? You and I can shake our fist at the rain. We can yell at the wind. We can argue with the snow. And what happens? Nothing. Except you just get, except probably you, your family wants to seize you and take you away, just like with Jesus. We, we don't have any control over that. Yet Jesus rebukes the storm, and the storm obeys instantly. 
So these very same disciples who heard Jesus back in Mark 1 rebuke the devil, they're beginning to figure out that the guy in the back of the boat also has the power to rebuke the winds and the raging sea. He has authority, he has power over the devil and over all of nature. Who can do that? Who is this man in the back of the boat? There's a great windstorm that was followed by a great calm, an eerie calm. And our great story here ends with, perhaps surprisingly, great fear. Mega fear, verse 40. In 41, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obeys him? I don't know about you, but if I'm on that boat, I mean, after the storm ceases dramatically and, and the disciples were, were just catching our breath a little bit, there, there would be exuberant joy, would there not? I mean, we're going to make it. Mega hugging. At least a lot of high-fiving. Like, it's going to be okay. We're going to cross the other side. No, by the way, Jesus, you're welcome on our boat anytime. We're going to live. But that's, that's not what we read here, is it? There's great fear. Mega fear. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So in this great storm... The disciples rebuke Jesus. Jesus rebukes the storm. And now get this. Jesus rebukes his disciples. Now, no doubt the disciples should have known better. I mean, they had been with Jesus long enough to know. They had seen him perform miracles. They had seen him uh, perform healings and exorcisms. These disciples were eyewitnesses to how the kingdom of God was breaking in. And it was breaking in through the person and work of Jesus, the true king. Yet in their moment of weakness, fear, great human need, when literally they felt like we're going to die, they failed to realize the power of the king in the middle of that storm. We are so much like them. <laughs> like this last week. I am so much like those disciples. This isn't going to be the last time that the disciples fail either. So if you're here and you're thinking, well, I didn't really get it on the first time, well, just hang in there. Lots of failures here on the disciples' parts in about the next five or six chapters. Combination of pride, of a lack of faith, or just sometimes because they struggle to understand the work of God. Now, in this story, what is highlighted here is their lack of faith. And so, church, there is an important lesson for us here as it pertains to faith, sincere faith, real faith, robust faith, the kind of faith that I trust you want, that I want, the kind of faith that we want to grow in, and here it is, faith that is real is faith that trusts God in the present, not simply because of the past. So real faith, sincere faith, it's not just acknowledging that God has done wondrous deeds for us in the past. It's actually believing that he can do even greater things today. 
and tomorrow and next year. That kind of sincere faith, again, the kind of faith that you and I want, it's not simply looking back at all that God has done. That is the beginning, yes. But it's actively relying on that same God to do the same thing today and tomorrow and next week and next year and perhaps even greater than we can, as Paul would say in Ephesians, imagine. He can do more. Real faith. Banking your life on him. That if he doesn't come through, that, well, we, our boat is sinking then. But it's banking on the promises of God, on the character of God, on his word, that he is who he said he, he is, and he's going to do what he said he would do. The disciples had seen Jesus do all sorts of incredible acts of power for others in the past, but yes, in their moment of weakness and need and fear, they, they doubted his ability to show up for them. Well, church, I have good news for you today. Jesus always shows up. He does. He's committed to showing up in your life at your moment of greatest weakness, of sin, of fear. He'll be there. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel. Now, perhaps had these disciples maybe paid a little bit more attention in Sunday school, they may have remembered that lesson. But I think this is where they're a lot like us, or we are like them. Sometimes we need these sorts of truths repeated many, many, many times until it actually lands softly in our hearts. So, yes, I want to encourage you today to stay close to Jesus, to persevere with Jesus, yes, to hang in there with Jesus. But particularly if you are in the midst of some bit of crisis or area of great need, if you are fearing what the next four hours looks like of something going on in your life this afternoon, or you're not sure what tomorrow brings, and you don't have a plan for six weeks from now, it is not most important that you try and hold on to Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that he is holding on to you. And he will not let you go. He has promised that in our times of greatest human weakness and trial and hardship, he is near, he has grace, he has power to save and power to rescue. So why the fear then on the disciples' part? Doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Yet here we find that the disciples are even more afraid of Jesus after the storm than with the storm itself. I think the only thing more frightening than being in a small boat in the middle of a great storm is being on a small boat in the middle of a great storm with a man who can command that great storm to stop, and it does. That's why there's fear. Mega fear. Because the disciples have just come face to face with the unrivaled power of Jesus. They saw with their own eyes a glimpse of his divine omnipotence. They got a brief glimpse of his majesty and of his glory and of his lordship over nature. In fact, they just discovered that the man in the back of the boat is in fact God who speaks one word. And nature 
obeys. In, the, in that sense, brothers and sisters, the presence of God is far more frightening than all the destructive forces of nature combined because one can take your life, but the other will claim your soul. And the disciples at this point realized that their rabbi, their teacher, that the man in the boat is God. And only God can command nature. Psalmist picks up this theme. Maybe the disciples remembered some of these things. Psalm 89, verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 104, verse 7. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Psalm 107 is actually almost it's a prophetic paraphrase of what we read here in Mark chapter 4, verse 28. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distresses. He, that is God, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. That's our God. That is our miracle-working God. Perhaps some of you are thinking, you know, this story here in Mark, it, it actually does kind of sound somewhat familiar. Like, where have I heard that? Have I read something about that before? Where have I heard or read about a, a great storm, a boat that's taking on water, a bunch of sailors yelling and screaming and fearing for their lives, and there's a prophet of God and takes some decisive and immediate action, and then there's great calm. Well, if you're thinking about Jonah, then you would be right. This story has some very interesting parallels to that Old Testament story of the prophet Jonah, like Jesus. Jonah's sleeping through a storm at sea. He's awakened by those sailors who are fearing for their lives, and after he is thrown into the sea, there is great calm. And it's followed by an awe, a reverence from the sailors to, to Jonah's God. Now, obviously, there are some very clear differences. It's Jonah's disobedience that causes the storm in the first place. But if those parallels are intentional, and I actually believe they are, if they're intentional on Mark's part, then I think the disciples in the boat there are starting to figure this out. That one greater than Jonah is here. Matthew 12, 40. The one greater than Jonah is the guy that was asleep on the sandbag in the middle of the storm. The one greater than Jonah is the one that said a word and everything became calm. The one greater than Jonah is the one that we're fearing. The one greater than Jonah is the one who was already preparing to die on a cross for those guys that were in the boat. The one greater than Jonah is the one who had authority to forgive sins, and sins were forgiven. The one greater than Jonah could speak a word, and impure people are made pure, clean. The one greater than Jonah could speak a word and heal a disease and sickness of every kind. The one greater than Jonah has mega compassion on weary sufferers who, who don't have anything more to give. And the one greater than Jonah also has mega mercy for stubborn sinners who refuse to bend the knee. 
And so the response then of very ordinary, normal people like these disciples and like all of us, when we realize that one greater than Jonah is here, one greater than Jonah is near, that in a sense that we are coming face to face with Jesus, well, that response is fear. That's a normal response. A good fear. A godly awe. A reverence when we see Jesus for who he really is. If you've never had this kind of good fear, a mega fear, that sense of deep and abiding awe and reverence for Jesus, for his power, for his glory, then you may not actually know who Jesus really is. And it may be that you really don't know him as well as you perhaps thought you did. The disciples here are still in a good spot. They have mega fear, mega awe, mega reverence. And that's the point of the question. Who is this? And that's how this great story actually ends. Who is this in the boat? That's the question that every one of us has to answer. And I don't know that there is a more important question to answer in your heart and in your life than that. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? And that's not a question, if you're a child here this morning, that's not a question just for adults. You don't have to wait until you're 21 to answer that question. Now's the time to begin to wrestle with that. You can ask your parents or ask somebody here how they might answer that question. Who is Jesus? Do I rightly fear him? Am I learning to see him for who he really is? In fact, as an act of worship, will I turn to him in faith, believing that not just in his past goodness and grace and all of his wondrous deeds in the past, but will I activate that faith to say, you know what, I actually believe, Jesus, that as you have been faithful in the past, that you can do even greater things today, that you can even do greater things in my life tomorrow and this week. That's the kind of faith I want. That's the kind of faith we want. So we have to turn to Jesus for that and humble ourselves and receive grace from him. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, I know that there are some here who are fearful. I know that there are some here who are weary. And I know that there are others here who are flat out sinning and having a good time doing it. In some sense, Lord, we're a mixture of all those things. And yet there is only one that we can turn to who has grace and mercy and truth that we need. So, Father, I pray that our turning to you would be quick. I pray that we would take our lives seriously we would take our sins seriously as we bring them to you in confession, but that we would also take your grace seriously for us. That we need not fear, we need not be afraid, but that you would also, by your grace, help us to answer that fundamental question this morning, who is Jesus? And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.
central theme of Mark's gospel up to this point really has been Jesus' authority as Messiah, as the Son of God. Who is this? That's actually the question that it's going to be repeated here in the, the weeks and the months to come throughout this book. Jesus, in fact, raises this exact question a few chapters later in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. He's speaking to his disciples there. And he says, who, who do people say I am? Which is a very great, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Who do people say I am? Then he presses them. What about you? Who do you say I am? And once again, it's Peter who jumps in and says, you are the Messiah. So we think about communion. We gather for communion. Communion is for all those who, who can answer like Peter did on that day. Who are you? Jesus comes to us and says, you are the Messiah. You're my Savior. You're the one who lived and died on the cross for my sins, and I am trusting in you. I put all my faith in you. Now, if that doesn't describe you here today, so grateful that you're here. We'd love to talk with you more about this Jesus, about how you can know him, how you two can answer that question this morning. You don't have to wait until next week. We'd love to speak with you today, but please refrain from receiving communion. In just a minute, I'll invite you forward. We'll have the aisles go first here. We have uh, two stations up here, wine, grape juice, bread, file in and then uh, come back to your seat and you can eat and drink then and then center folks will go and again as you see folks there you can certainly avail yourself of that table as well let me pray and then we'll take communion our great god and heavenly father thank you for the blessing of our great salvation that is undeserved yet desperately needed we recognize O oh lord that well, we were in that boat in the sense that because of our sins, we were taking on water, we needed a divine rescue. And Jesus, you have provided that great salvation for us. And not only have you have saved us, but now you continue to sanctify us. So we may, may we never lose sight of our great and continual need for you, because the truth is, Lord Jesus, every one of us has very deep, and ongoing and continual needs. And so we, we are learning, Lord, to bring all those things to you, to bring our very hearts before you, to not hold anything back, and to receive what we need from you. Because we, you are our God, and we are your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to come forward.